All right, we're going to spend some time looking at the Bible together. Um, and I did wear a bow tie for you today. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, and before we start, we're going to try this like little liturgical thing we like to do at Easter. I'm going to say, Christ is risen. And then you're going to say, He is risen indeed. You know this. Okay, you're on top of it. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Well done. I'm impressed. You guys are doing this well. Okay, we're going to spend some time looking at the Bible together. And the way we're going to do it today is a little different because I'm going to bounce around a little bit. I'm going to look at several passages with you, but primarily we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. So if you're a Bible person, go ahead and crack open that Bible to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in the second half of it as Paul preaches to the skeptics in Athens. Athens was the most skeptical academic city in the ancient world, and Paul goes to preach the resurrection to these people who would find it extremely unbelievable. So it's going to be Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 33. As I said, though, we're going to bounce around a bit. Typically at Grace Bible Church, what we do is every week we spend time just studying the Bible verse by verse. We're right now in the middle of a series through the book of Philippians. And so each week, verse by verse, we're studying portions of each chapter. We're going to pick that back up next week. At the end of the sermon today, I'm going to end with Philippians as kind of a way to invite you back in to study Philippians with us. But today we're going to skip around a little bit because of the Easter celebration. We want to just focus on the reality of the resurrection. Now, Christians, we celebrate the resurrection every day. The resurrection is the reason we have hope. The resurrection means that Jesus defeated sin and death once and for all. And so it's very central and very important to Christians. But Easter is the memorial time of year when we celebrate. This is the time of year when we look back and remember, this is when Jesus rose from the dead. And so that's why there's a, f- a special focus on resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so the theme is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And here are our two points for the sermon today. Unbelievable. The two points are why the resurrection is hard to believe and why the resurrection is even harder to ignore. You got that? Simple two-point outline. I wish that meant it was going to be real short. It won't really be, but... <laughs> Simple two-point outline, why the resurrection is hard to believe and why the resurrection is even harder to ignore. And so before we look at our key texts, I want to just start by kind of recounting to you one of the most central passages in the New Testament on the resurrection, and it's from 1 Corinthians 15. There Paul says this is central to believers having life, security, and hope. Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers of this gospel. That's the word good news. When Christians say the word gospel, it's just a Greek word that means good news. We think it's great news that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the good news. And so if you're a believer, you need to be reminded of that every day because that gives us hope in a crazy broken world. If you're an unbeliever, you should consider this, why it's hard to ignore. So that's the good news. Paul points us to in 1 Corinthians. He says, this is the good news. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he rose from the grave. So if you hear nothing else today, you've heard it. You've heard the good news. That's our hope. Our hope is that Jesus not only took our sins upon himself on the cross, but that he rose from the dead. That that proved that he really has defeated sin and death once and for all for us. So as I picked this theme, unbelievable, you might be wondering why. And I think it's because we're in a time and culture where we find things hard to believe. We're in a very unbelieving time and culture, and I don't really mean that in just a religious sense. 
Although there was a big research demographic statistic that was just released last week, and I don't know if you heard this, but I kind of think it was released uh, just to freak out Christians. That, that's what I think. Call me a skeptic. Um, and here's the demographic. Here's the, the, the research that was released. We're told that right now in history, we're living in this time where we're now switching from church membership being something that's in the majority in our culture to now below the majority. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that send you into utter panic? Like the sky is falling, right? We now have less than 50% of our country that are members of a church. And as I said, I'm a little skeptical that that was released last week just to freak out Christians, just to be like, hey, they're going to all be celebrating the resurrection. Let's give them some bad news, right? Here's the thing, guys. When our country was founded, there was only 17% church membership in our country. So it's important to kind of back up and have a bigger perspective, right? We're going to live through ups and downs. And I think for those who have belief, it feels like a down time. It feels like a shaky time. But I want to remind you, we're going to see this in Acts 17. God appointed the times and the boundaries for you to live. He decided for you to live now. He decided for you to live in this place. Yes, this place. That's God's idea, and he can use you. Don't, don't be afraid. And then I want to say to my unbelieving friends, there are really good reasons to consider this truth. Yes, we can agree with you. It seems unbelievable. But even the first followers of Jesus thought it was unbelievable, and something pushed them from unbelief to belief. We believe what pushed them is that the resurrection actually happened. And so another statistic is 70% of Americans are now saying they don't believe each other. That's part of what's wrong with our country. Have y'all seen that statistic? Another statistic is 75% of Americans don't believe in government anymore. We're all like, oh yeah, okay, I can see that one. Um, I think we're in one of the most unbelieving times in our culture. And again, I don't think that's purely religious. I think this is at the root of it. We're the most skeptical and sold to generation that's ever lived. That's what I think. And so what I want to do is I just want to start up front by saying, yeah, the resurrection is unbelievable. So why do we believe it? Let's admit that it's hard to believe and then ask the question, why is it hard to ignore? So that's where we're going today. You've gotten the big idea. Let me pray for us because we believe when we gather around the scriptures and we talk about Jesus It's not just an information exchange, but it's a supernatural event. So we're going to ask him to show up by his spirit and to help us. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are with us. We pray that you would help us to have open minds. For those of us that believe that you'd remind us why we believe and deepen our belief and trust in you. For those of us that don't believe that you would show up today in a powerful way to give us some reasons to believe, God. Help us to see that you're there. We need you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, basic two-point outline is that the resurrection is, on the surface, unbelievable, so we want to ask two questions. Why is it hard to believe, and why is it harder to ignore? So I want to start with the hard one, why the resurrection is hard to believe. So we're going to look at Luke 24, verses 9 through 11, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, 18, and 32. As I said, I'm kind of skipping through some of these texts, we're not going to really dwell on them for a long time, Uh, but I think it's really important that those of us that believe in order to better get along with our friends that don't believe, and in order to better communicate the hope we have in Jesus, to start with the very obvious reality that it is a stretch to believe in resurrection. 
that common sense itself teaches us that people do not ordinarily rise from the dead. And if we don't admit that, it's going to be really hard for us to communicate the hope that we have in Christ. So we need to start with these obvious truths. I think sometimes as Christians, we're used to kind of fighting for our faith because there's a lot of things in this world pushing on us saying, don't believe, don't believe, don't believe. So we kind of become combative. We're like, no, I believe. I believe even harder because you told me not to, right? And we need to start with this reality of like, oh yeah, it's hard to believe. You know what? Our religion was founded by people who did not originally believe. You know that, right? That's what we see in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we see the first disciples, the first followers of Jesus discovering this empty tomb. And what happens when they discover the empty tomb? They don't know what's going on. They don't know what to do with it. Why? Because they live in the same kind of universe we live in where people don't rise from the dead. Here's the crazy thing. They've been following Jesus around, seeing him perform miracles. And he told them he was going to rise from the dead. They still didn't believe it. And so let's put ourselves back in the shoes of the first followers of Jesus. They were following Jesus around. They were convinced he was the Messiah. They thought he would be the king that would restore Israel and push back the oppressive, evil, pagan power of Rome. And yet they watched him get murdered. They watched him die. Have you ever really, really hoped in something and then seen your hopes dashed to the ground? That's what happened to the first followers of Christ. They were like, we, th- we thought he was the man, but now he's dead. Now he's buried. Now the accounts tell us that Joseph and Nicodemus did some initial preparation of the body, right? Every culture has different burial rituals, and in their culture, they would uh, prepare the body, embalm the body, so to speak, with spices and perfumes. And so a little bit of that had apparently happened, and yet after the Sabbath, they kind of rushed to do it before the Sabbath when they couldn't do any work as Jews. Then after the Sabbath, the ladies that follow Jesus come back to the tomb to bring additional spices uh, and perfumes, right? So the best we can put that together is just they hadn't really completed the job and they wanted to honor his body. So they're still grieving. They're still lamenting that their hero is dead, but they're coming to honor him just as we would through a funeral or through remembrances in our culture. We all have different ways of doing that. And so in this story, we have the ladies coming to the tomb And in that time, they would have this giant stone they'd roll in front of the tomb. It would take several people to move out of the way. And the ladies walk up and they discover that the stone is rolled away. And they discover that the tomb is indeed empty. And they're freaked out. And then the next thing that happens is even crazier, right? Another thing that doesn't happen in normal life, they see angels. And again, remember, like angels aren't normal, okay? Okay. Like, I believe in angels, and I believe the Bible is true, but if you walk up to me and tell me you saw an angel, I'm probably going to think you're weird, right? I'm going to try to believe, but I'm going to think you're weird initially, right? They were freaked out. They see angels. They're freaked out. So we're going to pick up the story in Luke 24. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. I said 9 through 11 on my notes. I changed my mind, okay? We're going to back up and look at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 5. This is what the angels say to Jesus' followers. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Verse 6, he's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? They're reminding him like, he he told you this was going to happen. He told you He, he had to die. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to the need for a sacrifice. 
that message had been hammered into their heads again and again and again. But like you and me, sometimes they just go through the motions, right? Like, this is what we do at church. We have these sacrifices. They, didn't, they weren't really paying attention to the deeper meaning. Jesus said, I'm going to be that sacrifice. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And even when it happened, they didn't believe. Let's continue to follow the story. Verse 8 says, and they remembered his words, right? So when an angel reminds you of something, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. I'd forgot it for the test, but now I'm remembering. The angel reminds him, verse 9, it says, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and all the rest. So what does that magic word, the 11, mean? Everybody know there, there are 12 apostles, right? 12 disciples later became apostles. Apostles meant sent ones. Disciple just means follower. Uh, and the 12 are like the magic number. Those are the main dudes. But what happened? One of them betrayed Jesus. He's dead. He's out of the picture. So now it's the 11. But this is an important word. It's like the main dudes, right? The leaders, the guys that found our faith. As Christians, we follow them. They wrote this New Testament book for us. These are the important guys. So they're going to go tell the important guys. And who is this that first discovers the resurrection? It's the women. It's the women. And here's a really important point to our faith. Um, We see these women. It says in verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. Here's the crazy thing, ladies. This is going to be offensive, so brace yourself, okay? Put on your seatbelt. Roman law and Jewish law, I say this every Easter, so if you've been here before, you've heard it, but Roman law and Jewish law did not consider women valid witnesses. Why is that offensive to you? That's offensive to you because Christianity has taught modern civilization that women are equal to men. The Jews didn't really believe that in their culture. The Bible taught it, but they didn't believe it culturally. Romans certainly didn't believe that. No other religion believed that. Christianity brought that to the modern world. Christianity taught the modern world that God values women as well as men. And so that offends us now to consider that. We weren't even considered valid witnesses in the ancient world. That's really important to take note of. But something more important here to take note of is that proves that this is not propaganda. Every other religion, every other philosophy writes propaganda. They're saying, you should believe this. and We're going to paint it in the best possible light. Christianity gives us just naked revelation of this is what happened. And it doesn't put it in the best light. For us, we don't notice it because we're modern people. We're like, of course the women were the first ones to discover the resurrection. No, the women were the first ones to discover the resurrection because Jesus counterculturally honored women. And that makes the story even harder to believe for first century people. Like you, modern people, me, as a modern person, we're so arrogant We think we can't believe because we're these smart, scientific people, right? Ancient people were bumpkins that believed anything. No, this would have been even harder for them to believe. This is not how you tell a story. They would have had to clean that up. If they were doing propaganda, they would have fixed this. They're like, no, that doesn't make sense. The apostles, the 11, they should be the first witnesses. No, it was the women. And, And listen to this. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them, to the apostles, an idle tale. That's what my translation says. Other translations say nonsense, right? Why did it seem to be nonsense to the apostles who had also been told that Jesus was going to rise from the dead? Why? Because people don't rise from the dead. 
Because this is unbelievable. Do you not see that? Again, I, I, we've got to put ourselves back into the shoes of the first audience. We're so arrogant as modern people. We think we're so smart because we have an iPhone in our pocket. Ancient people understood death way better than we do, right? People get sick, we send them off to a hospital. People die, we send them off to the specialist to handle that at the funeral parlor. We don't understand death the way ancient people, they were much more acquainted with death and how real it was than we are. They knew that people didn't rise from the dead. They were not superstitious bumpkins. They also did not believe. It says they thought it was nonsense, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Luke 24, 11, the founders of our faith. They were told about the resurrection. They did not believe it. We have to absorb that for a minute. Again, I think, I think we're often defensive. Those of us that have faith, we're like, I got to hold on, I got to hold on. I can't even consider these questions. It'll freak me out. No, you, you should. You should consider these questions. Because if you don't now, while you believe, there are going to be times that are just going to knock you out of the saddle and you're not going to know what to do with it. There will be times when you doubt and when you struggle. And you have to recognize that the founders of our faith doubted and struggled. And all the great heroes of the faith were people who wrestled with God. The resurrection seemed unbelievable to these first followers. And so I think it's really helpful for us to recognize that it's good to start with the difficulty. And I think Christianity is uniquely postured as a religion to help us make sense of this because Christianity is a religion of lament. It's really important for us to start with the reality that people usually don't rise from the dead. So when someone we love dies, it's heartbreaking because it's not the, normal, not the normal order of things to see them rise from the dead. And that's where the disciples and that's where the women were when they discovered this. They were lamenting. They were grieving. They were sad and broken. Christianity uniquely says it's okay to be sad. Why? Because the world is sad. Because our world is a world of death. It's a world of brokenness. But here's the thing, that in a way is a further, it's a further proof of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is not something that's breaking with the normal order of things, it's restoring the order that should be there. So lament is really important. We'll come back to that in a minute. Lament is a really important thing for us to start with. Recognizing how hard it is to believe, recognizing how difficult it was for the first followers to believe this, and recognizing our own lament and grief over sin and death. Death is painful. This world hurts. And if we're honest about that, it'll more readily enable us to see the truth. If we lie and say, I never doubt, it's easy to believe, our non-Christian friends are, are never going to be able to make sense of our faith. Christianity is uniquely an, an honest faith. It's a faith where, I mean, in our worship service, every week we gather and we say, confessing together, we are broken. Jesus, we need you. We're not saved because we're better than our neighbors. We're saved because we desperately need your grace. That's what Christianity is made up of. A hope in Christ, not a hope in ourselves. I grabbed a picture online of someone lamenting, just to kind of give you the image of um, pain and suffering. We're going to better be able to relate to and connect with our unbelieving friends if we're honest about our own pain and grief. 
if we're honest about the suffering that we're going through. Christianity for 2,000 years has been a religion based on that honesty, and yet we've also been a religion that for 2,000 years drifts often into kind of wallpapering over our pain. We need to make sure we're honest with our unbelieving neighbors. Yeah, life is hard. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, the first followers didn't believe it either. Yeah, no, I get it. I get your questions. It makes sense. You're not crazy, right? We need to be able to relate to our friends in that way. Um, One of the reasons it's hard for those first followers to believe is the same reasons it would be hard for the skeptical Greeks to believe in Athens that Paul's going to talk to in a minute. Um, That passage in Athens, it starts with skeptics saying, this is crazy. They call him a babbler. They're like, what is this babbler saying? It ends, the passage in Athens ends with some mocking him because he talks about the resurrection. So it was hard for the Greeks to believe. It was hard for the Jewish founders of our faith to believe as well. And I would say the main reason is something that sociologists call plausibility structures. I know I sound fancy just by saying that. All that means is how we see the world. What you expect to see is what you're going to see, right? If you ever had psychology 101 in college, you see these kind of experiments, right? You expect to see something, you fill in the blanks, and you kind of see the thing you expect to see. And so Jews expected a resurrection. Well, some of them did. The Sadducees didn't. Um, But the Pharisees, they were more of the Bible thumpers of the Jewish world. They expected a resurrection, but they thought it would be all at once at the end of time. That's what they were looking forward to. So Jesus the Messiah being resurrected now, and like the rest of it hadn't happened yet, that didn't make sense. That didn't fit their worldview. It was like, Jesus, you're doing this wrong, right? And that helps explain some of the strange time sequence stuff that we see in the New Testament, where the New Testament is like, the new creation is here, but not really yet. You know, like there's still all disease and tears and pain haven't been taken away yet. Yet, the new creation has arrived. Yet it has started now. Theologians refer to this as the already, not yet. We're saved already, but not yet completely. Jesus still hasn't wiped away every tear from our eye. We look forward to that final resurrection, but the resurrection has started in Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus didn't fit the Jewish worldview. It also didn't fit the Greek worldview. The Greek worldview is that this world is dirty and gross. Can I get an amen from some OCD people out there? Okay, some germaphobes. This world is dirty and gross, right? And the Greeks believed this. A lot of the different philosophies and religions of the Greeks all kind of believe the same idea that for them, the future world or whatever might be better in the future that was to come based on their different versions of that, you know, Epicureans and Stoics and all the different varieties, basically all of them believed it was being set free from this dirty, gross physical reality. That was what they looked forward to. So a little thought experiment for you. This might get me in trouble, but we're going to do it anyway. I just want you to think of something that grosses you out. Sorry, just think about it for a minute. Last thing that repulsed you. And then think of that thing being in heaven. And you're like, I don't want that in heaven, right? That's how the Greeks felt about bodily resurrection. They're like, why would I want this gross, dirty world in the future? I want to be free of this gross, dirty, physical world. That's how the Greeks were. So their plausibility structure, their worldview, their lens, their way of seeing things, it made resurrection unbelievable. What's our plausibility structure? We've got a million, but I think one of them, besides just common sense, and we don't normally see this happening, a big one is the scientific method, right? We're very scientific people, or at least we pretend we are. Um, We like to think of ourselves as very scientific people. We love science. Science has brought us a lot of advances, 
Uh, it's helped us in a lot of ways. It's failed us in a lot of ways. Um, but the scientific method is really interesting and ironic. The scientific method says that this can't happen because I didn't observe it myself, right? Um, and here's the thing that's really strange about the scientific method. The scientific method was built by Christians who believed that our intelligent designer created the world with order and structure. So then now we have this method by which we can measure and observe and experiment on this orderly world and come up with some rules and some repetitions that make sense. And that's given us a beautiful method by which we've seen incredible advances in technology, which we're all thankful for. Yet what's happened is in our plausibility structure, without even really realizing, we've mixed up a method with a philosophy. We've turned the scientific method, which is a great method, into a religion. It's a bad religion. It was never meant to be a religion, right? We said, well, here's how the method works, so I can't look outside of this realm to even consider anything else coming from the outside. And this is what I mentioned earlier. The resurrection says that Jesus is restoring the perfect order that was intended with this physical world. The miracles of Jesus were not violations of the physical order. They were restorations of the way this world is supposed to be. And we're like, yes, that's what life should be like. Yes, that's what should happen here. And we long for that to be true in a fuller and fuller sense. And so we've just got to recognize, as I said, we all have these different plausibility structures. We all have these lenses that we wear that make it hard for us to see the truth. But I think it's really helpful for those of, the, of you that are believers to be able to have conversations with our friends that are not believers to just recognize, you know what, we're, we're both kind of the same. And there are reasons that I believe, but I also recognize, generally speaking, this is unbelievable. It's not how things normally work. This is unusual. And so this brings me to, again, I mentioned this before, the, the really main reason that the resurrection is believable is that people that didn't think it was believable started believing because it wasn't propaganda that convinced bumpkins that don't know any better because they don't have iPhones. It was something that really happened. That's what changed people's minds. That's why those first century followers of Jesus were willing to die for the faith because the resurrection happened. But just on the surface of it, we have to recognize, no, it is unbelievable. It's not, it's not how things ordinarily work. So what can we do with this? Next steps. Well, next steps I would say for believers is dig deeper into the reasons for your faith. Understand that it is hard to believe and there are good reasons. Continue to study, continue to learn. Ask good questions of your friends that don't believe. Ask them why they don't believe. Don't mock them. Don't make fun of them, but recognize like, oh, yeah, that's reasonable. Let's talk about it some more. For those of you that don't believe, I'd really encourage you to actually look at the primary sources. Christianity, apart from almost all classical literature and all ancient faiths, has the most uh, numerous, historical, reliable documents compared to anything. I mean, it's absurd. It's so much better that it's like just silly that people doubt the authenticity of the scriptures. So that aside, read it, okay? <laughs> Just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read these first accounts. Look at Jesus for yourself. Don't let the, the skeptic on YouTube convince you that it's not believable. Decide for yourself. Don't be lazy, but do your own homework. Examine the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
Look at how he lived. Look at how he talked. Look at how he walked. Now, there are a couple of specific resources I want to recommend as well, just beyond reading the Bible for yourself. A couple of books that have helped me a lot. One is a short book, right? So if you're not much of a reader, the short book might be helpful. It's called Raised by Jonathan Dodson. It's a friend of mine that's a pastor in Austin, Raised. And he talks specifically about the resurrection. He's the one that first turned me on to this reality that both for Jews and Greeks, this was like an unbelievable paradigm. He talks about that and talks about why we should believe in the resurrection. It's called Raised. It gives you reasons to believe. Another book that's had a big impact on me is a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It's a longer book, fuller, gives more reasons to understand different aspects of the faith, but it's really helpful as well. Understanding that our faith is reasonable. It's not like a silver bullet that convinces people, but, but we should try, right? We should look into these reasons and, and wrestle with our friends that find it hard to believe. We should be willing to doubt our doubts, to examine our presuppositions, to, to recognize that we all have this lens by which we're seeing the truth, and we should be willing to question it. We should be able to dig a little deeper, and that's what I want to push us towards. The resurrection is hard to believe, but this brings us to our second point. The resurrection is even harder to ignore. The resurrection is even harder to ignore, and now we'll spend some more time in Acts. In Acts chapter 17, we see three reasons that the resurrection is hard to ignore. We see that, number one, Paul discovers that idolatry is everywhere. That's true in Athens. It's true in our culture as well. Number two, we see Paul saying, your own poets have said. He quotes their own poets back to them. He's like, you guys kind of believe this already. You should investigate more what's out there. And we need to do the same thing. Our own poets point us in that direction. And finally, Paul calls them to change. He says, the times of agnosticism, the times of ignorance are over, and you need to consider a change. So first thing we see is that when Paul starts walking through Athens, one of the reasons that the resurrection is hard to ignore is he discovers that there are idols everywhere. They're just idols everywhere. And again, I want to remind you, this is the most skeptical academic city in the ancient world. We're told in this story, as you go back and read it for yourself, I'm not going to read every verse here, but we're told that that these people just kind of academically exchanged ideas, and they just like to bounce around the latest philosophy and the latest religion and talk about ideas. They love to share them and hear them and weigh them and measure them. They like to kind of make themselves the judge of what was true and what wasn't true while not really believing anything. And yet this culture was full of idols. And it says that rattled Paul, his heart was provoked this word that is repeated in the Old Testament of of God and his heart breaking over us when he sees us worshiping things that want to hurt us. We worship things as humans that that don't set us free but actually enslave us. And we see the same reaction Paul has. He sees the idols everywhere and it, it breaks his heart. Now to be clear, in the first century, idols were like little statues, right, that represented their god of Zeus or Hera or whatever that they might worship and bow down to. And let's just be clear, we are modern people and we're way more sophisticated than that, right? We don't make our idols into statues. That way we can lie about our idolatry, right? So you can worship sex, but nobody knows because you don't have a statue on your mantle. You can worship money, but nobody knows. Well, they know, but you think nobody knows because there's not a statue that you're bowing down to. You can worship your family. But you're not bowing down to a statue. Here's the thing. The Bible is clear that whatever we give our lives to, we give our energy, our our money, our hopes to, that is our God. And here's the thing. Any other God besides the generous, self-sacrificing God of love 
will eat you for lunch. You're going to become a slave of whatever you worship. Do you want to be a slave of something that wants to kill you? Or do you want to be a slave of the God who sets people free? That's the question. The question is not whether you will be a worshiper. The question is whether you will be honest about it or not. And that's what Paul is going to call the Athenians to, to recognize that there are idols everywhere and they need to come to terms with it. Now, there's this other funny little phrase that appears farther down in the text. It comes up in verse 28. It's your own poets have said. Your own poets have said, right? This is in your own literature. In Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. He's really quoting multiple poets. Some people think Epimenides. Some people think Cleanthus. But apparently this is in a lot of their poetry of their day. And then he says, As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Again, different people attribute this to different authors. It's kind of hard to find all the ancient poetry. We have plenty of copies of the New Testament, but it's hard to find copies of this other stuff. For we are indeed his offspring, it says. And so he's quoting bits and pieces of their poetry, of their literature, and saying, your own poets point to this reality. You know God is there. You know he's a judge. You know that you're sinful. You know you need a sacrifice to pay for your sin. You know you need resurrection from the dead. The Christian story puts it all together. But all the other poetry out there, there's like bits and pieces of it hanging, little hints, little foreshadowings in our poetry. And just to clarify as well, he says poets, we would say, your own movie makers have said, right? Or your own authors have said. Poet was a catch-all term for any kind of creative writer in the ancient world. Um, So I'm a comic book nerd. I don't really read comic books anymore, but I still like to watch comic book movies. Um, There's a lot of good ones that have come out lately. One that came out a few years ago just wasn't that good, but I loved the ending of it, okay? I'm going to put a picture up here of the very ending, the last scene. Some of you might recognize it. Some of you may not. As I said, it wasn't a very good movie. The movie was Superman versus Batman or Batman versus Superman. Got kind of panned by the critics. I don't care because I'm a comic book nerd, so it's okay. But the last scene was just awesome, right? So in this movie, spoiler alert, it's old, so who cares? But Superman dies, okay? Sorry, your hero is dead. Superman dies. The last scene is this coffin, and there's this crazy little artistic visual foreshadowing that happens in the very last scene. This is the last scene. Just like any brokenhearted funeral, people put dirt on the casket. It's a common thing we do at a lot of funerals. People will just drop dirt on it as a way of kind of closure. There's dirt on the casket. And then the last scene, the dirt kind of wavers. It kind of floats. And if you're not a nerd, you don't get it. But whenever Superman would fly, he would like crouch down to the ground and the dirt would kind of start to pop because he was like violating the rules of gravity when he would fly, right? And so it's this foreshadowing that Superman will fly again, right? There's this float. And it's just this hope we have of resurrection. Our hero's dead, but we want our hero to live. That's just one example, guys. Like one example from a bad movie from five years ago. We could go to Neo in the Matrix, right? We could go to the Harry Potter movies. Arguably, the Deathly Hallows does this more beautifully than any of our modern movies. And, and I would argue it comes off so well because she steals from Christianity again and again in her writing. But it's in our comic books. It's in our pulp fiction. It's in our movies. It's all over the place. We know he's there. Paul's saying the same thing to the ancient Greeks. You know he's there. 
He's there. You want him to be there. You need him to be there. Your own poets have said, we're we're longing for this to be true. We need this to be true. And Christianity is the fairy tale that has come true. Christianity is the God who has entered this world of brokenness and pain. That pulls together all these little half-truths that come from all the other poets and prophets and religions and ideas. And it brings it all together in a way that makes sense. And that's one of the great proves that the resurrection is something that we cannot ignore. I want to give you a long quote from one of our own poets. He's an author named David Foster Wallace. He's pretty famous. He's dead now. He passed away a few years ago, Uh, but pretty famous in the writing world. He he would write long novels, like thousand page stuff. Hard for me to get through personally, but I love this speech that he gave. Fantastic speech. And I sometimes joke, this is my favorite atheistic sermon. It's by a guy who was known for being an agnostic, known for being an atheist, and this is what he says. Here's something else that's weird, but true. Again, this is a graduation speech he was giving. Here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. David Foster Wallace said that. If you worship money and things, he says, if if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in our myths, our proverbs, our cliches, epigrams, and parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. So even one of our own poets has said that our own poets have said (laughs) that this is true. He says it's the skeleton of every great story. He goes on, he says, the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, I actually think they are, but we'll differ from them here. It's not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious, he says. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into. Day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. As I said, we all worship. There are idols everywhere. The question is, are you going to be honest about it? The question is, will you worship something that enslaves you to sin and death, or will you worship the God of the universe who sets you free and gives you life? That's the question. The God of resurrection or all the other gods that are offered to us in this world? So Paul, when he's preaching to the skeptics in Athens, he's like, your own poets have said this. It's like, it's everywhere. Epimenides, Eratus, Cleanthus, all these, it's it's there, it's there, it's there. You know this is true. 
and he's weaving together bits and pieces from all their philosophies and all their different views. And he's saying, it all comes together in Christ. And then Paul begins to bring together one more theme that he was weaving throughout his soul message. Again, this is in Acts 17, verses 16 through 33. And he starts off his speech saying, I recognize that you guys are very religious because you have an altar to the unknown God. They're afraid they're going to miss something. So they set up an altar to the unknown God. That unknown word in Greek is translated most literally agnostic. You have an altar even to the God of agnosticism, just in case you left something out. And then he picks that theme back up here at the end. So we're going to look at the end of his speech in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Ignorance is that same word again. The time of agnosticism is over. You can't say you don't know anymore. Why? Because the God of the universe has broken into space and time. He's invaded space and time, and we don't believe it because we're country bumpkins that are gullible. We believe it because it happened. We have journalistic records. We have historiography that stands up to anything else that's offered in the world. And yet it's ignored because we're like, oh, well, we can't believe in things outside of what we normally believe in. People are afraid to doubt their doubts. He says, the time of agnosticism God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that word repent, we often take as a hard Puritan, evil religious term, right? Like whip yourself or be sad with yourself or something weird. We all have different varieties of weirdness in our heads. The word repent just literally means change your mind. Will you just change your mind? Will you just think again? Will you just stop with the default setting of this is the way I've always seen things? Will you open your mind to consider that God has broken in? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? And he rose from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He's defeated sin and death once and for all. That's the promise that we see in the gospel. It's something that we want to be true, but we're afraid to hope in. We're afraid to believe in. The resurrection is hard to believe, but it's even harder to ignore. It's even harder to ignore. In a couple of weeks, some folks are going to get baptized. And as they get baptized, this is an ancient Christian ritual where we basically just act out the drama that Jesus has washed us. We're dunked in the water. Two symbols. It's a symbol of having your sins washed away, right? It's a symbolic bath. It's also a symbol of death and resurrection. If you trust in Jesus, you're trusting in his sin sacrifice for you, that he took your sins on the cross, but you're also trusting in the resurrection, that you have new life in him. I was listening to a podcast this week, a pastor who just got diagnosed with cancer, and he's already older, so he's kind of more realistically facing the end of his life. He said, you know what, I've preached sermons and written books on, on suffering and on the resurrection, and I haven't changed my mind about any of those things, but it is much more real to me today now that my time is short and I have cancer. He says, the reality of the resurrection has given him a power to live. And he said this really interesting fact. He's one of my favorite writers on the subject of apologetics, and he's like, the resurrection is a proof in apologetics, right? That's, that's part of the role that resurrection plays, right? Paul even says it this way. 
He says, now he's appointed this time for you to repent. He says in verse 31, because he's fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So it has this apologetic function. By that, I mean, it's an assurance, Paul says. We have an assurance that Jesus is the one that's qualified to rule heaven and earth because he rose from the dead. So it has that kind of proving function. But Paul, later in Philippians, we'll come to this, and this pastor in the interview says, but it's more than that. It's actually the power by which we live. And so that's, that's where I want to finish. I, I mean, I want to encourage you to investigate the claims of the resurrection. I want to encourage you to have real conversations with your friends that don't believe. They're not crazy, but we still want to woo them towards belief. And I want to encourage you to, to keep studying, to keep pursuing Jesus, to consider taking next steps if if you've been saying you believe in the resurrection, but you haven't really been living by that power, to consider next steps of following him in faith. But I want to end with this. The final proof of the resurrection occurs in Philippians, the book that we're studying. And this is an appeal for you to come back and keep studying the book of Philippians with us. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes it very clear. We've called the series Risk Everything. And in this passage in Philippians 3, Paul says, I'm considering my old life loss compared to the surpassing value of Christ. He says, I'm I'm throwing away what I used to trust in. I'm risking everything to pursue Jesus. He goes on and says this in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, Jesus, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Greek scholars argue over this because this is uh, arguably one of the cuss words in the New Testament. Paul's like, I consider it, fill in cuss word, garbage, junk, trash. My old life is nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. What I used to count in or count on is not. He goes on in verse 9, he says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul saying, I figured out that default worship. I was worshiping self. I was worshiping my own willpower. I was worshiping law keeping, but I wasn't worshiping the God of that law. I was trusting in my ability to keep it, and now I'm turning from that, and I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm risking everything to trust in Jesus, to follow him, to see him as the true treasure, and see everything as loss and garbage in comparison. And he goes on in verse 10, and here's the final proof of the resurrection. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. This is the power of Christ's resurrection that Paul knew and that you and I can know now in the 21st century. In the midst of all the chaos that we live with, he says, the power of resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We want to reckon with, there are real reasons for the resurrection. We want to reckon with the reports. We want to study. We want to pursue. But here's the thing. No one can argue with the power of the resurrection operating in your life. As you actually follow Jesus, he will give you power to endure suffering, to love other human beings, to no longer be obsessed with yourself, to actually care about other people, to be a sacrifice, to be like Jesus in his death. That's what the world needs. 
The world needs us to know the power of the resurrection in this supernatural way, not just academically, that we know the reasons and study the apologetics. That stuff is helpful, but we'd actually rely on Jesus day by day. We'd actually serve other people. We'd actually suffer with him as we love the people that he gave his life for. And as we do that, then the world will see this unbelievable resurrection is believable. Let me pray for us, and then we'll finish our time together. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent Jesus. Um, God, we admit this is hard to believe, and we have strong days and weak days. Lord, you know there are days we question, we lament, we grieve. We thank you that we can, we can be honest about that, and we can share that with you and with the world. But we also pray that you would grow in us a deeper and deeper recognition that your resurrection is something we cannot ignore. We pray that it would change us, that it would make us more like your son, Jesus, that we would know the power of your resurrection, that we might participate with you in your sufferings and extend that life to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.